What I'm doing this morning is I'm shifting just for this week to a series that's called Getting a Grip. We've been doing it on Sunday nights. It's getting a grip on some things we struggle with. And so before we start a new series in the book of Acts, I'm just filling in for a couple weeks here. This morning I wanted to fill in with this Sunday evening series and just expose the bulk of you to it because of the topic that I want to talk about this morning. The last three weeks we've been talking about getting a grip on your temper, your anger, getting upset. This morning I want to talk about getting a grip on discouragement. Because so many of us don't pray that prayer that was just sung about. So many of us have fears. We have struggles. And the fellow we're going to talk about this morning was one who didn't run to the Lord. He ran away from the Lord. And he got into some really deep discouragement and depression to a point where he wanted to die. So before we expose ourselves to the passage, why don't we have a word of prayer together, please? I was reading an editorial comment that described, described the world. It went on, this world is too big for us. Too much is going on. Too many crimes, too much violence, too much excitement. Try as you will, get behind in the race in spite of yourselves is an incessant strain to keep pace and still you lose ground. Science empties its discoveries on you so fast that you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. The political world is news seen so rapidly you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who's in and who's out. Everything is high pressure. Went on to say, human nature can't endure much more. That sounds like our world, doesn't it? But it was written in 1833. Describing what society was like there. That it was chaotic. It was overwhelming. You read the newspapers. Oh, we don't read that anymore. We read, we read our phones. We read, you know, and hear news today. And it's overwhelming. It's discouraging. And yet we as believers are called to live with an attitude of praise and having an upbeat spirit in the midst of chaos and crises. Time and again, God encourages us to be thankful, to give praise, to count it all joy. And it's tough, but we have a lot of good reasons to do it. I mean, we're born again. We're children of God. We have a promise of heaven. We know that He is our Father. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And yet... We have those down moments. We have those down days. And not all believers are upbeat. Some even walk in the doors of church and they just say, leave me alone. Let me sit. Just don't talk to me. I need something to get me going. Now, some people we can't fix. There's a story of a fellow who, he said this young man was in a church and there was an older saint in the church that was extremely pessimistic. Just everything was bad. Everything was terrible. If you would say, hey, you know, it's a bright sunny day. Too much sun will kill you. If they say, what's well, a rainy day? Too much rain will destroy the crops. You know, they, they would say, hey, I had a potluck supper. Wasn't this wonderful food? Too much good food, get fat. You know, everything. Everything had a negative connotation. So this young man made it his mission. I'm going to get this older saint to find something positive, to say something upbeat. So he decided that they would go hunting together. They were going duck hunting. And this young man had trained this wonder dog of his. And he said, this older guy, when he sees this dog, he's going to say something positive. So they're out there. They're in their boat. The duck comes over. They shoot. One of the duck falls. And the young man says to his dog, go get it. The dog jumps out of the boat. The dog runs across the top of the water. Grabs the duck, brings it back, jumps in the boat. And the young man smiles at that older grumpy saint and says, So what do you think of that? Pretty amazing, huh? Dog ain't no good if it can't swim. You know, it's just, it's going to find something wrong. Just has to be something. Now, you know, it's kind of like you can't fix stupid. You can't fix, fix somebody who is so pessimistic. And yet, there's a, there's a challenge for you and I that we know... We're not like that. We're not like that grumpy old guy, but we know we're supposed to be praising the Lord, living on a, on a spot where we're counting it all joy. And yet it's difficult. Even godly, godly, godly saints found it difficult all the time. You go through the scriptures, and we've studied some of these people. We remember studying the time when Moses said to the Lord, he said, I'm not able to bear this anymore. I'm not. Kill me. We remember going through David. Where David says, my bones waxed old within me. The roaring of, all, of the night just prolonged the agony. We've, not, we've done a mini-series years ago on Jeremiah. 
where Jeremiah says, my pain is perpetual, my wound is incurable. Will you, God, be unto me as a liar? We've even read in, in, when we have went through the series in Corinthians where Paul writes about all the troubles and the struggles that he had. He says, we despaired of life. That happens to real people. It happens to godly people. And so my lesson for you and me to keep in mind is beware. Godly believers do get discouraged. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't, don't write yourself off. Godly people can even become defeated at times. We shouldn't stay there, but we should realize that that is a pit we can get into. And we're not immune from it. One prophet I want to look at who was highlighted in the New Testament and was one of the greatest is the prophet Elijah. His story that we're focusing on is 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19 is the section we want to talk about this morning, this evening. And what he does, we want to look at this morning the, this whole story of his discouragement and talk about how discouraged, what happened to him. And then we're going to follow up with this evening, how do you deal with it? How did God deal with him when he got that way? How do we deal with ourselves? How do we deal with one another when we feel like Elijah did? So first of all, let's start off with this. Just so we're all on the same page and following. The setting of the story is very simple. Most of you know it, but in case you're not familiar with the story, this is a time when the kingdom of Israel had been divided. David has been dead for, for a period of time. Solomon has been dead. And the kingdom then divided after them. It was a wonderful kingdom until it divided and you had the northern and southern Israel. And so we're about 125 years after David now. The king and queen who are on the throne in the northern kingdom, their names are Ahab and Jezebel. People don't use those names to name kids. Because Ahab and Jezebel are really terrible, terrible, terrible individuals in Bible history. Just awful individuals. We know in scriptures that they said, uh, it says about them, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord above all the kings that went before him. He was the worst of the worst. We know that they, they entertained, they, they made the state religion away from Jehovah and they were propagating Baal worship. The prophets of Baal, 450, 400, they sat at the king and queen's table. They were the preferred cultists in that kingdom that was supposed to be a Jewish kingdom. So it's just a horrendous time. So what happens is Elijah is sent to challenge them. He's the prophet coming and bearing God's message to say you have to have revival. Well, to get them to the point of listening, he comes to the king and queen and says, there's going to be three and a half years of no rain. There's going to be a drought. It's a punishment of God. For your evil, you've got to repent. And so then at the end of the three and a half years, what happens is he comes back to the king and he says, now we're ready for a contest. Now that you have God has got your attention, let's do a contest. Your gods against Jehovah God. And so what we want you to do is we want you to get your 850 prophets and you will get them, we'll all meet at the mount. And Mount Horeb, you're there and we'll have this contest. And all of Israel can gather and they can watch what's happening. And your prophets, what they're going to do is they're going to build an altar. They're going to put a sacrifice on it. And they're going to call upon their God gods to send fire down from heaven. And then I'm going to build an altar. I'll put a sacrifice there and I'm going to call upon Jehovah God to send fire down from heaven. Whoever's God or God's answer, that'll be, that'll show they are the true God. And so Israel, as you're watching this, you're going to have to decide. No longer sit on the fence. No longer limp. No longer be halting here. Decide who you're going to serve. Which God? Are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve Jehovah? And so they have this contest and the deity that responds, we all know what happens. Okay? The prophets of Baal start early in the morning. They go all the way until the evening. It makes it very clear. It's an all-day affair. And even at noontime, Elijah is sitting there and says, gotta cry louder. Noontime would be when their gods would be at the zenith of their power, according to their religion. You got to be louder. Maybe your God is sleeping. You got to wake him up. You know, the alarm bell isn't loud enough. And so he's mocking them and they go through all of their, con you know, incantations, contortions, whatever. And then at the end of the evening, he, Elijah gets to work. He builds his 12 stone altar, one stone for each tribe. He makes the sacrifice, cuts it up, lays it up there. And then he tells the people nearby, dig a trench around the altar. 
And then what he does is he has them soak everything with water. Remember, it's a drought. Water is limited. But pour it so that it is softened wet. Soaking wet. So even the dry ground became so saturated that that little ditch they built, uh, they, they dug, it was overflowing with water. So they, they just douse this thing. And then he prays. And God answers. And within, within just seconds, fire comes down from heaven. And the fire, it licks up the offering. It takes up all the stones and burns them to ash. And it even takes up all the water round about. God answered with an exclamation point. And so the people respond. And the story is that the people, they hear this, they see this, and they, they, they respond, God, Jehovah God is God. And what do they do with the prophets? Anybody remember? Okay, they execute all of the prophets, the, the false prophets, the, uh, the prophets of Baal. They execute them because that's what the law said. So now what happened is they have revival. And the story goes on a little bit. Elijah goes up onto the mountain, right above, higher in the peak, and he prays, God, send back the rain. The people have decided they're going to serve you. Send rain. And they see the clouds come running across the ocean there, and it's, they're going to get a downpour. And rain comes after three and a half years, on cue with what the prophet prayed. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Ahab went back and told his wife, now, if you were the king and you finally had an end of a drought, what would you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up, because economically, things are going to get back in place. If you were the king's wife, what would you think? This is good, takes the pressure off us? Yes, no? Yeah, you would. Not her. Not her. She's, she gets mad about this thing. Even though, even though the drought is done and things now could get back to normal, she is not happy because the people took out her prophets, her false, her false religious leaders. She's mad that the people are turning back to Jehovah. So she responds, chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. She responds with a note. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sends a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also. Hey, you got to pause. What has Elijah just proven to her and everybody else? Those gods aren't real. She hasn't given up. She's hanging on to things that have just been proven false. She says, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of them, the prophets, by tomorrow about this time. And so she sends this note to Elijah. This is when everything falls apart. Elijah gets the text, he reads it, and he responds this way. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, the southern kingdom, and left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay and slept underneath the juniper tree. Behold, an angel touched him. And said to him, Arise and eat. And he arose and did eat, verse 8, and drank. And went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, slain your prophets with the sword. I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in the, of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain your prophets with the sword. I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This man fell flat. He hit the pit, the bottom of the pit runs away from the revival to the point where he wants to die. He's saying that he's the only one who's ever served God. He deserves better. Runs into the wilderness and argues with God. And is insistent and just persistent in his stubborn argument with the Lord. How do you get that way? How do you come to that point? Well, the lesson is godly believers can fall victim to discouragement and defeat. So we got to beware. Can I add to it something that you and I need to take note of? We need to remember this, to be especially cautious and careful at our most vulnerable moments. They are usually on the heels of a victory. They are usually after mountaintop experiences. They're usually after we have a wonderful ministry of neighborhood night. And things went fantastic. And then within a short time after that, trials and troubles and difficulties. Those involved, those who prayed, those who worked, those who invited, all of a sudden, there's challenges. It'll happen to us again within the next weeks. We'll have a wonderful reenactment. Get out the gospel. It'll be a tremendous time of working with you and working together. And after that, we're going to be tempted. We're going to be challenged to become discouraged, defeated, that we feel like we deserve better, that we feel like we're worn out, we're wiped out, we can't do anymore. God, you're expecting too much from me. And people should have responded better than what we thought they did. It's easy for us to get there. So we need to be careful. We need to beware. Now, I want you just to see the caution here, how important this is. This is not the first time Elijah faced a problem. Do not, do not underestimate do not say, you know, well, Elijah, it just, he, he had this mountaintop experience all the time. No, he didn't. He didn't. He had some real difficult times. If you go through the beginning of his story, starting in chapter 17, he is this prophet who is a no-name told to go and confront the king who has life and death authority. He had a tough job to go and talk to Ahab and Jezebel and say, you're wrong. I mean, how would you like to walk into the White House and say, <laughs> you would like to, I know. But, but it would take great boldness to walk in and say, you're wrong. That's a tough job. That would be, that would be intimidating. It would make us all nervous. Afterwards, after he said, you know, there's not gonna, you're wrong, there's not going to be rain three and a half years, they are hunting for him. You read in chapter 18, for three and a half years, they had the armies out after Elijah. He goes into hiding. This isn't an easy life for him. In fact, he goes into the wilderness, and when he goes into the wilderness, God takes him by the brook of Kareth. It's in a deserted, remote area, and God provides meals for him for weeks. It's bird meat. The birds are bringing him stuff. I have no idea what they're bringing him. Are they bringing him roadkill? Are they bringing his, the stuff they got? Or did they go to the Taj Mahal palace and get the steak off the table? I don't know. But I know this. If birds were bringing the meat, I wouldn't be real, real tempted to want to eat it. And while he's there getting bird food that's coming on a regular basis, he's got his water. He's there in the wilderness. He's protected. God's got, God's got you know, the king befuddled, can't find him. Then what happens? The brook dries up. All of a sudden, there's no water. Now, that could be a problem. That could be a problem when you're out in the desert and you've got no water. Now, what do you do? You got to trust the Lord. Lord, what am I going to do? God directs him and says, go to the city of Zarephath. And in Zarephath, I've got somebody who's going to take care of you. He arrives and he finds this widow that God impresses upon him to go and talk to. Talks to this widow and this way he says, hey, will you make me some food? She says, I was making food. My last bit of food for me and my son. I was making it. You can eat it with us and then we're going to die. Well, that's an encouraging place to live in. That she's got nothing. She doesn't, you know, what are you going to do for tomorrow? Anyway, God works miracles. 
And God provides for her that her flower bucket never runs dry, her oil bucket never runs dry, and God is doing a miraculous working behind the scene. And then as he's, he's there, he's under her roof, and God is keeping him safe and secure from Ahab's armies, then all of a sudden one day, the woman runs up and says, my son died. Elijah is devastated. This is the woman that's been providing, providing her home. She and her son, you know, they've, they've become whatever, whatever it is. You know, they're living in the same place. No doubt he had some feelings for the son. And he's broken. He says, God, why did this happen? This, this boy died. And you remember what happens. He prays. And what happens? The boy comes back to life. First time. First time you've ever seen this. Well, how he prayed that way, what, what motivated him to pray that way. There's no other story in the Old Testament prior to that. Somebody rising from the dead, recovering like that. So he's this man of great faith. But it was a trial. It was a troublesome time for him. And then, yeah, at the end of it all, he goes and has to meet with the Ahab. Once again, doesn't know how the king's going to respond if you'll let him get his message out. And he says, let's have the contest. And he has, so what is so different about all these difficult moments that this bold, brave, solid as a rock man, all of a sudden he gets a letter from Jezebel and he collapses? What was it about that situation that led to his collapse? That you and I need to be careful of if we ever get to that point, what factored in? What contributed to that you and I need to be careful and cautious about? Let me give you several factors. That played into the role. And run through them quickly here this morning. He forgot his God. At this moment, he forgot his God. If you remember in the New Testament, he is the highlighted uh, man from the Old Testament about prayer. In the New Testament, it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is from the book of James. This is God saying, prayer is profitable. And the guy that God picks as the example is Elijah, was a man subject unto like passions as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain for three and a half years. It didn't. Then he prays again that it would rain, and it did. But we read this in his story. Every time up to this point, when, he's, when he has to go and confront the king, when he's told to run for his life and hide, when he's told to go to Kareth, when he, then he gets direction to Zarephath, every one of those moments, he has a time of communion with the Lord. God talks to him and or he talks to God. It's stated in every one of those episodes, except for this one. When he gets the note from Jezebel, there is no waiting There is no running to God. There's no waiting for direction. He just gets up and runs. He takes off. Beware, it is so easy in the middle of a personal crisis to run and react without acting right. The first place we ought to run to is to the Lord. Okay, to the Lord God. But Elijah made the mistake and it contributed to his downfall. But the first thing he does is he runs away. Well, when you run away from the Lord, you forget your devotional time. You just you you uh, just abdicate reading your Bible regularly. You are opening up the door. Be careful. Be cautious. There is something else he that contributed to his downfall. His fatigue. He is physically exhausted, totally wiped out. Why is that? Run through the story with me, and and remember. He has been the day of the contest. I've already highlighted to you and told you that from early morning until evening, the prophets of Baal were going. They were all out there on top of the mountain. It's the heat of the day. It's a drought. Elijah was there all day long. Then, at the end of the day, he's the one, the passage says, that built the altar of 12 stones. It says he's the one that slaughtered the animal, the sacrifice. Now, he directs others to put the water on, but he's actively engaged. He's physically working hard. Then on top of that, after the contest and the fire comes down, he goes up on further on the mountain and he prays multiple times, lengthy time. His servant runs a couple different times to see, is there any clouds coming? So he has a lengthy prayer time after a busy day, after physical labor. Here he is. Then the rain starts coming, And the passage says, he says to the king, you better hurry up and get to the palace. 
And it says, Elijah ran in front of the king's horses 20 miles. I don't know about you. 20 feet would be enough for me. 20 yards. This man outruns the chariot for 20 miles. Okay? Do you think he's tired? Do you think he's a little bit exhausted? Well, then what happens is he goes down towards the passage down to Beersheba. He travels another 130 miles. Then after that, he goes into the wilderness where it is a parched wilderness. Okay? Without God's direction, he's on the run. Then he, we know he's so tired that he says, it is enough, I want to die, and he eats, or he's, he falls to rest, and God sends an angel to feed him, verses 5 and 6, and he lets him sleep some more, and then feeds him again, and says, you've got to eat some more, because you've got a 40-day-a-night journey coming in front. This guy is hungry, he is tired, he is worn out. May I suggest this? When you are physically exhausted, you are more vulnerable to discouragement. When you are physically hungry, so let's rephrase that, when you are hangry, okay, we are more vulnerable. And if you've got one of those weeks where some of you are working those weeks, when you're putting in those 60-hour weeks, you are more vulnerable. And if those weeks pile up week after week after week after week, you know, one of the great delights in life is having a new baby in the home. It's wonderful. It's great. And then you see that mom about two, three weeks later. Yeah, how's it going? Why is that? You, you don't get the rest. You don't get the rest. And after a while, I say, let's put this baby back where it came from. You know, this is too wearing, too exhausting. And life is like that, friend. In fact, we're going to talk about tonight how the Lord just makes, he, he gives commands for us to be careful of taking care of our physical bodies. We need to be very, very cautious. Be cautious. That's why God said in the very beginning that you shall rest one day in what? In seven. There's a pattern for it. There's a reason for it. There needs to be a break or you will break. Let me add this. There's personal fears. Personal fears. Here's this guy who, in the past, he's confronted Ahab on a couple different occasions. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he boldly went where no man would go before him. He goes to Ahab and confronts. But, and so he, he's, not, he's not this chicken lily guy. He's a bold man. He's courageous. But now, he says it several times. They seek my life. They seek my life. He runs because they seek my life. What made him so fearful? What, what caused him to all of a sudden change? Well, one of, this, one of these factors in fear is he gets caught up in things that aren't really true. It's partially true in the fact that, you know, that they seek my life is only partially true. Somebody is seeking his life. Who is it? It's Jezebel. It's Jezebel. Remember? She's the one that sends the note. If Ahab wanted to kill Elijah, did he have opportunity all day at the contest? Couldn't he have taken the horses and chariot and run them over in that 20-mile marathon? It wasn't Ahab. It was Jezebel. But when all of a sudden we're tired... Do mountains expand? Do things get exaggerated? Do you get into these frustrating moments where you start saying, you never, you always, and things explode and expand? In this case, it wasn't Ahab after him, it was Jezebel. And when you think this through, if Jezebel really wanted to kill him, what would she have sent? What do you send? If she wants to kill somebody, what do you send? You send the army. You send, you send an assassin. Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. What does she send? What does she send to him? She doesn't send a killer. She sends a note. I mean, seriously. 
If you're going to do a dirty deed, do you send a note and say, hey, just to let you know, I'm coming to rob you at 12 o'clock. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to come and smash your windshield at 11.59. We, you don't do that. She, you know, he's responding and saying, she's trying to kill me. If she wanted him dead, she would have sent the killer. So, the big question is, why send a note? What's that? To scare him. If she kills him, what happens? He becomes the martyr. If she can beat him down so he runs away, he's a coward. He's defeated. The revival gets undermined. She's a wicked woman, pretty smart about human nature. So what she does is she sends this note, and he says, they're trying to kill me. Three days later, Lord, take my life. You ran because you didn't want to die. And now you're saying, I want to die. Does it ever happen we become irrational? Does it ever happen we say things that are like blown out of proportion? All of a sudden, he's not thinking clearly. Is it just because he's tired? Could be. Is it just because he's hangry? Could be. Is it because his fears are starting to overwhelm him? Well, let me add to this, that what happens is like Elijah, we can get fearful too. We see possible problems, and all of a sudden, we can expand those problems. They get bigger and bigger, and we exaggerate the situations, which frequently happens. The, the, the challenge at school, the challenge at work, the, the challenge with, without, they get exaggerated. And it gets worse in our own minds, and it leads to us getting discouraged. What adds to that as well is this, failure. I'll come back to fear in a second. But failure too. So what happens is Elijah's goal is to bring revival. We all understand that. That's what God sent him to do. But if you want real revival, you got to get that, get the top people who have control. And so that's why Ahab is there. He's trying to influence Ahab so that Ahab will get revival. That's who he talked to. That's the one he personally challenged is Ahab, let's do this contest. Your prophets, your wives, but we're going to have this contest. Ahab, you've got to decide. Well, the nation of people decided, but Ahab didn't. And definitely his wife didn't. She clung to her gods. Even though he had proven them to be false, she sends the note and says, you know, before my gods, I swear I'm going to wipe you out. Well, her gods aren't real. It's been proven, but she doesn't budge. And so from his perspective... He failed. He failed in this. The king and the queen, the ones who are in control, they haven't moved an absolute iota. And he's focused so much on them. By the way, when we see our failures, we usually focus on what doesn't happen and we forget all the good that has happened. Here it is. All the nation is responding, but these two aren't. Uh, But what about all this? But he's so focused on his own failures that what happens is he says, okay... He starts saying, I am not as good as my father's. I'm not, I can't do it like you can do it. I'm not as good as you do. Does this ever happen? You have a bad game playing sports. <sighs> I'm not as good as so-and-so. You forget all the good games you had, and you focus on this one really lousy one. And you get discouraged. You, know, you get defeated over this thing. It's never wise to compare ourselves with others. It's never good for us to start looking back and saying, okay, how am I doing compared to some other people? Be very cautious of it. Especially when we're focusing on our weaknesses. And so those, those failures, those fears, they work together and they get Elijah really down. Let me see if I can illustrate this way. We were talking about, we think this is how, this is how we remember it. When our kids were in those those tremendous moments of their life, getting their license. Remember those moments? You know, the passage of, of here, getting into adulthood. I'm going to go, I'm going to get my license, and I can drive and be, be you know, on my own. 
And so our kids, uh, when, we were, when we were doing our family, in my wisdom, I said, Dev, you do the training. You take them out, you teach them how to drive. I'll kill them. So you take them out, you have the patience, you work it through. I will not have the patience. So she did a great job. And one of our kids was just, the confidence wasn't there. I'm I'm so nervous. I'm so afraid of what could happen. I might might fail this, you know, taking the the written test. If I fail, I'll never get my license. And if I ever get my license, I'll have to live with you two forever and ever. Oh, this is, you know, and so they were very, very panicky that they wouldn't get their permit, first of all. And so it was this thing that we said, let's pray about it. So we fasted and prayed for nine months. And um, they came to the day that they were going to take their permit test. They were so nervous. They were just so fearful and so, oh, it's not going to work. And, you know, they, they had this idea that it's going to take three hours to take the test. There's going to be 3,000 questions. And it was just exploding. And after fasting and praying and going in and taking the test, guess what happened? He passed. He passed. So he said, see, God can work miracles. You passed. Okay. And so he said, now you're going to start driving. You got your permit. You can drive. So on the first days, we got him to go driving. He's driving through town. You know how those grips are on your steering wheel? Mine doubled that week. They were, there was lots more grips. He was driving, and he pulled up because we were going to drop off a card or a birthday card or an anniversary card to people at the mailbox, at the post office. And so you drive up to the post. You know what I mean? Pull up next on the street, and you can just reach out the window. Well, you've got to be careful. You can't get too close to those mailboxes. They're, they're cemented in. And so he hit the mailbox with the mirror. And the mirror is one of those breakaway mirrors that just kind of pivoted in. But that was all it took. I knew it! I knew it! My first time driving, I crashed the car. You didn't crash. You didn't crash the car. You know, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not driving. Open the door and started getting out. There's traffic going by. You're going to get run over. And it's like, you know, just calm down. Get back in the car. I'm never going to drive. I'm never going to drive. It's going to happen. I'm going to run the old ladies down in the crosswalk. I just know I'm going to hit. I'm probably going to run up on somebody's steps and wipe their mailbox off their house. And it was just this exaggeration that was going crazy. And it was just blowing up, and the fears, and this one little failure got all the attention. Now we have to wait and go through this every day for weeks until it gets all those hours in. Deb, take a trip to Minnesota. Get these hours in quick. Let them drive the whole way. Come back. Drive again. Get it all done. we got to get over this, this just fearful existence. And over this one failure of a mailbox, you know, a mirror that moved a little bit. Yeah, and so finally the day came. And you reminded me this morning that the day came and they were shut. Yeah, it was Veterans Day. They were shut. We got to do this 24 more hours of listening to this. Just, Lord, please, please. I'm never. And you know, we would hear these comments. I'm never going to get my license. I'm not as good as my older siblings. I'm not this. I'm not that. And it's like, <sighs> so we fasted and prayed, went in for the driver's test. And guess what happened? Failed. <laughs> How soon can we reschedule this test? Can we, can we do something? And so it was, I'm never going to drive. I'm going to live with you forever and ever. And it's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Well, we'll do something. And then it, the, the weeks went by and we finally got the license and it was like relief. Does that really happen to people? That they get fearful and they get frustrated over failure. You know it's true. You've been there. You lived it. You blew it at the job. You blew it when you were at a game and you were there and you were supposed to be the star. You blew it at work at some times. I have, those, I have these moments on Mondays that are horrible. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I should have said it this way. How could I be so dumb? as to make, say it this way or that way. And, it's, and you get all caught up with the foibles and the flaws and forget about all the good. Forget about the good that God is doing. Well, there's Elijah, just totally defeated. And on top of that, let's add to this, he is used to instant. He, Elijah reminds me of 2022 believers. We live in a world where everything is instant. And name it. 
What do we have that's quick and at our disposal? Instant coffee. Instant oatmeal. And now you're getting hungry here. So let's, let's get off the food, okay? Okay, instant foods, instant, instant paycheck. I mean, you have to work for it, but it's instantly deposited. We got everything. We, we want to know the scores. We want to hear that the Phillies win this afternoon, okay? We'll get the score real quick, okay? We, can, we get things quick, 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 quick. Elijah has our problem of getting used to everything fast because that's where God's been working up to this point. In his life, there's no prayer. Just watch this segment of his life. He prays, no rain, no rain for three and a half years. Pretty good, pretty good. He's, he's in a wilderness, and I made fun of the bird food, but I mean, seriously, God's taking care of you by bringing you food every day in the wilderness? That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, the widows, he goes to the widow, and God does a miracle so that her cupboards never are bare. <laughs> this is really cool, God. God, you're doing miracle after miracle for me. You know, the child dies. He prays. The child rises again. Whoa, God. This is amazing what you're doing, God. This is, this is, I call down fire from heaven. Everything's gone. I just wanted the sacrifice to be done. To be, you know, I wanted it to be burnt, you know, beef. And it's gone. The, raw, the stones are gone. The water's gone. God, this is amazing. Whoa, and the people are taking out the prophets. How cool is this? This is absolutely phenomenal. Then he gets that note. And there's no miracle. There's nothing. He gets discouraged. He runs. God, did you forget about me? You've been, you've been pampering me all along. Where are you? And then God comes and meets him in the cave. After weeks go, weeks go by. Remember, 40 days and 40 nights, he's going to be running to this area. After weeks go by, then he, a miracle. There's, there's the wind, a tornado. Do you remember the last time God appeared in a tornado? Do you remember? The book of Job. Do you remember? God came and talked to Job in the whirlwind. It's got to be God. But he wasn't in it. There's an earthquake. Remember the last time the rocks were falling in a mountain? Mount Sinai. God was there. And not only was there the, the quaking of the mount, there was also fire. And he just saw fire. And he's there and he says, God's here. And there is, there's nothing. There's nothing. God, where are you? Did you desert me? And then we read, God speaks to him in a still, small voice. And God doesn't do a miracle by taking out Jezebel. God doesn't do a miracle by just, boom, I'll zap you with all kinds of courage. God doesn't do that. God just in a still, small voice says, what are you doing? What are you doing here? How'd you... How do you justify being where you're at right now? You know how God is doing that to you in your devotions of late? God is speaking to your heart and saying, you've walked away from me. What are you doing here? Worship isn't enthusiastic and exciting anymore. How come? I didn't move. What are you doing? And we're waiting for the miraculous. We're waiting for the phenomenal. We're waiting for the pizzazz to come down while Burgraff preaches something's going to come out of heaven and zap my soul and I'm going to be all fired up once again. And it doesn't happen. Burgraff just keeps on going and nothing does and nothing's working. But the still, small voice of God is trying to speak to you and saying, what are you doing here? And Elijah's all used to everything, zap, pow, woo, phenomenal. It's not the way life works as a whole. But we get discouraged when we see all these big blessings and we expect it to be all the time. Remember this, God, God's work most often is done not in the miraculous, but in the mundane. We can list off all kinds of things. How God provides, God leads, it's usually through the mundane. I'll pick up on there tonight. But let me add, finish out here. He severed his friendships. This is typical of somebody who's discouraged, somebody who is down. Elijah ran and he left 
his prophet there. He all of a sudden abandons the people that he could use, who could help him, and he abandons the people who he could help. This is a characteristic of people who are down. They start to isolate themselves from others. They want to just be by themselves. I'll be okay. Just leave me alone. Don't call me. Don't talk to me. Woe is me. I wish people would care, but don't call me. Don't come and visit me, but nobody cares for me. It's like this broken record. This goes around and around and around. And it's, it's, it's really challenging, you know, to the point that some people seem to enjoy being there. He's fault-finding. He becomes highly critical of God. I, even I only, am the one who has not, not forsaken you. I'm the one who has been very jealous for you. I don't deserve this, God. I'm such a good person. I'm such a good prophet. I've done so much for you. Why are you letting me? And now I, even I only, am left. I'm the only one who's serving you so faithfully. Doesn't this remind you of a woman who got upset with her sister? Because I'm the only one serving you, Jesus. Do you remember that? Do you remember that was Mary and Martha? And all of a sudden, I'm the only one working so hard. I'm the only one who's done all this effort. And I'm the only... By the way, let me, let me just add this. I don't know if it's in these notes or, or it's tonight's. He knows of at least 150 other prophets that he hid. He personally hid from the king uh, Ahab. He knows there's others. But when you're frustrated, when you're discouraged, you're the only one. Nobody has the job as bad as I have. That's what people think. I, not, not me. Okay, I'm spoiled. But we think nobody has as bad of a partner as I have. Nobody has as bad of kids as I have. Nobody has as bad of... And we all of a sudden, this becomes this full-blown thing that we find fault in other people very quickly. And God, I don't know what you're doing, but friend, it is dangerous to make yourself the standard. It is dangerous to consider you and you alone are the only one faithful to the Lord. It is dangerous to start saying, God, you, I deserve better from you. So here he is, all these things, with this last one. He fed his spirit of self-pity. He kept on, kept there. I'm not as good as my father's. Even I, I only. This woe is me. This woe is me. It is so easy to feel sorry for yourselves when we're tired, we're worn out, we're facing opposition. It is just so easy. And, for, and when I, I already said this, for some people it strikes me that they become comfortable there. This sounds very odd. I know it sounds very contradictory. But over the years, I've run into people time and time again who are discouraged, who are depressed, and it's like, come on, get out of it. I'll show you from the Bible how to get out of it. I don't want to. Why is it people like Elijah come to a point where instead of running back to God, they kind of just sit there and say, I, even I only, what are you doing here? I, even I only, they argue with God. I think this. This is my summation of years, of years of dealing and seeing this time and time again. I think people who get discouraged and start faltering in their Christian life, no longer are working in, in the ministry, church, no longer serving like they used to because they got discouraged, people didn't appreciate them, they got upset, no longer working on their marriage because the other partner isn't working the way I'm working at the marriage. I think people get to that point because they feel the pressure is off. I'm so discouraged. I don't have any responsibility anymore. I, I, I just, I'm going to wallow here in my pity because I don't have to change. Because I'm not where I'm supposed to be and as a result, it's kind of easier to be in a pitiful situation where I can just be woe is me than to fight the fight of the Christian life. I can sit on the sidelines and enjoy sitting on the bench 
instead of being out there and serving the way I ought to serve and working on correcting my attitude, I can give my family, my friends an excuse. I'm discouraged. Woe is me. Self-pity is an escape from really serving the Lord. You ever been there? Should I change it differently? Are you there? So here he is, this guy. Subject to like passions as we are. That's the passage that should click this in our minds to say, we can do the same thing. We can be there. What do we do? How do we turn this off? How do we help a friend or a family member who's at this point? Tonight, we're going to show you God's, God's sub, uh, prescription for this. How God deals with him. How, and, and our question's got to be tonight, what did God do with this man? What did God tell him to get him back on track? But let me close with this illustration. There's another man in Scripture who did the same thing. He went through great trouble. His friends turned on him, and he says, I'm greatly distressed. And all of a sudden, we read in the passage, he encouraged himself in the Lord. He got back to him and God. Turns to the Lord. When he walked away, and another time in his life, when he walked away and committed horrible sin, he said, oh Lord, my bones wax old within me. But he prays and he comes back to the Lord and he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And then he makes this comment, deliver me from my guilt. And he adds to it, he says, open my lips that I shall show, show forth praises. Just as, as a little tidbit of what do we do, we come back to the Lord. We come back to the Lord and we say, God, I need to repent of where I'm at. And one of the other attributes in scriptures that are so beneficial is we rejoice in song. We think, we refocus, and we remember in song that God is always good, that he is always good. You're here this morning. We haven't talked about it, but if you would like to talk to one of the ministers here about your salvation going to heaven, they're headed to this door right now. They will be there. They will show you from the Bible what you need to do to make sure you're on your way to heaven. If you're here this morning, you say, I'm just, I feel defeated. I want to pray with somebody. Go over there. Why we sing in worship about our God to reconnect our thoughts that our God is always, always good.